If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Chapter 17. For what seemed like an eternity Corwin fought for her life in a nightmare where she drowned over and over again in the bowels of the albatross. The wooden walls of the ship cracked and split to crush and stab her in the belly, back, and sides. The arms of dead seamen clutched at her, dragging her deeper and deeper into the darkness. She called out for Ben, for Devon, for her parents long dead. She wondered time and again what sin had sentenced her to this watery hell. But one day she woke to find herself alone in a cool, dry, down bed, far away from the twisting movement of the sea. The room around her was golden, with plain sand-colored walls thickly plastered with warm brown clay. The floor was smooth stone covered by a rough tan rug, balmy air poured into the room through a large open window that looked out over a jungle. From where she lay she could see out over a deep lagoon to a rolling blue vista of endless sea. The late afternoon sun painted everything red with the last heat of the day, Corwin stared at the shadows running across the wall before her, too tired to care where she was and too grateful to be alive to worry about the future. Before an hour had passed she had fallen asleep again. When next she woke, a young Indian woman was bathing her head with a cool cloth. The woman's brown eyes were gentle and her expression deeply concerned, mustering her resources Corwin managed to smile. How long had it been since she had been treated with tenderness? A lifetime it seemed, her nurse startled, returned the smile. Then she said something Corwin couldn't seem to understand. The words sounded like English but somehow they meant nothing. The woman seemed to understand Corwin's mystification. She held up a clay bowl as if asking if Corwin were hungry. And Corwin was surprised to find she was famished. She struggled to sit up only to find she was encased in thick linen bandages from hip to shoulder. The woman put the bowl down and carefully propped Corwin up with pillows. Then she fed Corwin spoonful after spoonful of the clear chicken soup. When Corwin could eat no more, the woman put the bowl down with a satisfied smile. She helped Corwin lie flat again and covered her with a sheet and soft blanket. Before she left the room, Corwin was fast asleep, so it was for several days. Each day the kind woman tried to speak to Corwin and time after time Corwin could only smile in response, the sounds she heard simply rolled around in her head like marbles. Nor did she find herself much troubled by this strange ailment. It was enough that she was no longer being tortured and this kind woman had come to take care of her. After what might have been three days or a month, Corwin woke to find a stack of leather-bound volumes beside her on the bed. Moving carefully, lest her broken body protest, she selected one of the books and held it over her head. She could just make out the word Tempest on its scuffed cover, and images of a king stranded on a magical isle flickered through her mind. While she was studying one of the pictures in the book, her nurse appeared with her tray, 
Buenos días. The woman said with a wide smile. She placed the tray on the floor and propped Corwin into a seated position. As the woman took up her seat on the edge of Corwin's bed she said. It is a miracle. For so long you sleep it out the angels would take you away. Thank you for helping me, said Corwin. The words came to her now, making sense in a miraculous way she had always taken for granted before. I do not know how I came to be here, but I am very grateful to you. Someday you think you will remember everything. The dark woman replied confidently. Then she lifted a spoonful of broth to her patient's lips. Ethan you will be much better soon. Corwin reluctantly took the spoonful of broth the woman offered. Suddenly she felt quite ill at ease being waited on so completely. If you give me the bowl, I think I can eat by myself. She said. Oh yes, laughed the woman. If feed you as a child and talk to you as a woman. Giving Corwin the bowl she slipped to the end of the bed to watch her eat. What is your name? Corwin asked as she took careful spoonfuls of soup. The woman's face lost some of its radiance. The fathers call me Maria. She said. Is that what you call yourself? Corwin asked. You cannot say my true name even if I say it. The woman said. It is an Indian name. Only an Indian can say it. You may call me Maria like the others. Smoothing her skirts, she changed the subject. Will you tell me your name now? Corwin Chase. Corwin replied, still wondering how a name could make the woman sad. You must think me quite lazy. You have been caring for me for so long and here you find me reading. No, you toxic, said the older woman. The captain tell me, she said, gesturing at the door. That you very hard but very brave. It won't help you. Good people must help each other. Is this not so? I am very grateful. I hope I can find a way to help you someday, said Corwin, wondering who Maria was referring to. It must be Devon, but she couldn't recall seeing him after he shot two Joel's. Or be kind to another. So the next one, and the next one, and the next one. But now we spent more time at my home. My man tired of his own food. I ask we my daughter and her brothers cannot care for you. And it is good they learn. The woman smiled again. But, when you will, you visit me. I will, said Corwin with a smile. She was surprised to find tears in her eyes. She must be very weak indeed if such a simple thing could make her cry. A whole family of good people. Was there really such a thing in this world? I can see you are very tired, said the woman. Sleep so you can be strong again. She took the bowl from Corwin's hands and helped her to lie flat. In another minute she was gone and Corwin had slipped into an exhausted sleep. Prospero and Ariel haunted her wild dreams, when a young native girl, perhaps no more than thirteen, came to bring her a tray the next afternoon, Corwin asked that a bath be brought as well. The girl declined at first, but Corwin was firm. She could not remember the last time she had had a bath, and she felt sure her bones would ache less after a long soak in warm water. The girl left after a short while and Corwin had little hope her request would be honored. She had no way at all to force the issue, but, not long later, a pair of boys not much older than the girl rolled a large wooden tub into her room then returned to fill it with several buckets of steaming water. The worried young lady followed after with soap, a nightgown, and a yard of linen to use as a towel. She left a moment later, obviously uncertain that she had done the right thing. Corwin struggled into a sitting position on the side of the bed and carefully unwrapped the ribbons of bandage that went about her body. Her chest groaned at the sudden loss of support. With the help of the bedside table and a nearby chair, she managed to make her way to the tub. 
Once in the water she saw deep black bruises that flowered across her body. How on earth had she survived Dujol's beating? As the water cooled, she began the laborious process of washing her hair. It was very difficult. Moving her arms over her head made her ribs hurt and her back ache. Perhaps this had been a mistake after all. You are a fool, said Black. He had entered her room unannounced to find her sitting in a now cold tub with sudsy hair. Get out, said Corwin, even as her heart leapt at the sight of him. He was sun-browned, barefoot, and his white linen shirt was open at the front. He looked every inch the daring pirate. Surely even a dog can expect privacy in its kennel, she managed to say with some dignity. Black contemplated the discoloration of her flesh through the clear water, then picked up one of the buckets on the floor, scooped up some water and dumped it on her head. When she reached out for a towel he handed her the linen the girl had brought more than an hour before. As Corwin dried her eyes he said, Well, you are one dog I have taped together with my own hands. I rescued you from that hellhole and it took every trick I knew and some I had to come up with on the spot to save your life. I reserve the right to keep you alive even against your better notions my lady. Please leave me alone, said Corwin. Shivering, she was now well and truly exhausted. She covered her face with wet hands, determined not to cry. Stand up. Let's get you back in bed, said Black in a slightly softer voice. When she did not comply, he lifted her from the water, moved her to the bed, and arranged her limbs to make her lie flat upon the smooth sheets. Her body seemed to sigh in relief at not having to hold itself up. His hands carefully explored the black and magenta blooms that flowered across her. He seemed unaware of Corwin's discomfort and embarrassment as he prodded here and there, stopping only when she cried out. Well it's a pity that Dujols is already dead, he said as if speaking to himself. I'd like to go back and kill him again so I can make it take longer and hurt more. He looked down into her eyes. Listen, I am going to bandage you up again. If you remove these bandages in under a fortnight, I shall have to return to reapply them because you have fractured ribs. Do you understand? If they move too much they will stab your lungs again and the bleeding will return. So please leave the bandages on and stay in bed until you are properly healed. Corwin looked away from the warmth of his gaze but surrendered a nod to his request. He helped her ease into a seated position and swiftly re-wrapped her in the wide bandages she had removed to bathe, then he helped her lie down again. He covered her shivering body and gave her a book to read. Because you are such an enterprising young woman, I will tell you that you are on an island that is all of two miles across. Myself and my men are the only ones on it. There is exactly one ship here. Mine. There is nowhere to run to and nowhere to hide on this little sandy spot in the middle of the sea. So please, for the love of God, stay in bed. Without waiting for her assent, he left. A few minutes later the boys returned. They tipped the tub out the window to dump the water then rolled it out of the room. She heard it thumping down a flight of stairs a moment later. Corwin obeyed Black's orders because she didn't want to see him again and because his words about her ribs rang true. She had seen a man on her estates in England die from being kicked in the side by a horse. He had drowned in his own blood. She was in no condition to seek escape and if what Black said was true, there was literally nowhere on this island to go, so she occupied her days with the books consuming them slowly, savoring the words, because she had nothing else to do. Her appetite grew, her strength ebbed back little by little, and time had no meaning. She made no attempt to count the days because she had nothing to look forward to and nothing worse to fear than what had already been done to her. When movement at last did become less painful she took to sitting on the floor near the window, 
staring out at the jungle several stories below and watching the lagoon where gulls chased each other and waves broke one after the other in an endless parade. One morning when Corwin found herself sitting up quite without pain, she made a careful assessment of her status. Though the ribs were still tender, she could move and stretch with no ill result. Surrendering to impulse she removed her bandages to find the bruises had mellowed to pale yellow and brown. Having explored her room an infinite number of times during her confinement, she knew there were clothes in a small chest under her bed. Inside there were three identical white dresses made of some soft cloth that felt warmer than silk. She had no crinolines, no corsets, no laces. Just these long shifts that fell from her neck to her ankles. She pulled one on then opened the door to her room. She found herself on the stone landing at the top of a long flight of stone stairs. On either side of her were doors that led to other rooms. Barefoot, she made her way slowly down the steps. On the first floor she found there was what looked like a barracks or a dining hall filled with tables, chairs, and bunks. The door to the structure was open and she stepped through it. A well-worn path led down to where she could see Devon's ship bobbing in the water with the crew hard at work on her. Turning her eyes away from the ship, she found a path that led around the edge of the building. When she followed it, she found herself looking up at the window she frequently sat in to read. She followed the little trail through a canopy of trees to the edge of a rocky cliff. A hundred feet below sunlight sparkled on a lagoon dominated by a large flat rock that baked in the tropical sun. From where she stood she could see a steep path that led to the water below. Though her healing body was sure to protest the descent, she set off to make her way down. At the bottom of the cliff the fine white sand of the narrow beach was so white it hurt her eyes and burned her feet. She walked to the lapping waves of the sea and found it as warm as bath water. In moments she had stripped off her gown and slipped beneath the waves. Corwin took hours to discover the secrets of her new haven. The walls around the bay offered tiny crabs, strange new fish, and hundreds of nests. The flat plain of the boulder held the heat of the day so it was comfortably warm to the touch. She found herself thinking of the girl she had been before she left London. She had lived swaddled in layers of clothing supposedly in an effort to protect her virtue. She had been raised in ignorance and innocence, making her easy prey for the most brutal of men. She could never have imagined this place or this kind of freedom. Looking back she saw she had been groomed to be a slave no better or more free than those she had seen in Dujol's house. They had not owned their own bodies. They had not been free to live where they wished or to do as they pleased. Such great gifts were granted only to wealthy men who could travel the world, seek their fortune, command their fate, and bed whoever they desired. It struck her that the girl she had been in England had died, and the woman she had become was a stranger. Black watched Corwin from the top of the cliff, marveling at how time had strengthened her body. After killing Dujols, he and Adam had made their halting way to the wharf and to his ship. With Aubrey's help he had staunched his own wound and then he had turned his attention to the unconscious girl. Through her skin he had felt the broken ribs flex beneath his fingers and her swelling abdomen had told a tale of internal injuries. Carefully he had manipulated fragments of ribs through the skin to pull them back into the correct orientation and position, then he had wrapped Corwin tightly to slow the bleeding. He had been all but certain she would die. In the days of delirium that had followed she had cried out for him, for her brothers, for her parents begging them to help her. Lost in her nightmares she had told him over and over again that she did not want to die, that she was sorry, that she wouldn't run away again. All he could do was hold her, praying she wouldn't die in his arms. Of course he had also heard how much she hated him for abandoning her. How much she loathed him for not caring enough to find her, to buy her, to return her home and set her free. 
She told him a hundred times how she would see him swing one day, and then, she had wept like the damned. And, through it all, one thing became clear. He could not give her up. He did not care how much she hated him. He did not care that it was cruel to keep her. He did not care that she was a person and not a possession, or that she wanted to go home. Their die had been cast from the first kiss, from the first dance, from the first time he had taken her to his bed, she would be his mistress just as he had told Elizabeth. He and Corwin were not so different really. Both their lives have been thrown into the hazard. Perhaps they were meant to create their future, rather than accept merely what had been given to them. He turned to make his way down the cliff as the sun began its descent from the sky. Corwin, face down on the flat plain of the boulder, heard the waves splash and the seagulls call. If there were a heaven on earth it was this, she thought. She felt a shadow cross over her, water drip on her back, and sat up alarmed. Black was lying beside her, eyes closed, his black breeches soaked and molded to his skin. His chest was bare, sun-bronzed, and hard from his many years at sea. How often I imagined you here. A sea witch with green eyes and a wild spirit residing in this secret lagoon. When was that, my lord? When you ruined me in a garden, ravished me in your parlor, bedded me on your ship, or sold me to your friend? I didn't sell you to Andre. I paid him to send you home. You would be there now, my lady, if you hadn't run away. I have a thousand sins on my soul but not that particular one. Corwin said nothing for a long moment, eased herself up to look at him. A freshly healed wound resided not so far from the bullet hole she had earned him in London. She thought of his back, his flesh covered by a hash of whip scars. This was the rough world he lived in. The one he had drawn her into. She envied him that he was strong enough to thrive here. I remember when I thought you were a god, she said, recalling the long ago ball and her terrible inability to speak. How much shame she had felt at her awe. Do you recall how you struck me dumb my lord? He was looking at her now. I knew you did not belong in that room with those people. Now I know neither of us did. Some sense of him binding her ribs on his boat came over her, a dim memory of the hours he had spent holding her during the panic of her pain and delirium. Were they destined to destroy one another, injury after injury, loss after loss, enmeshed until they both died? Then they were star-crossed lovers indeed. She leaned down to touch his lips with hers and felt the golden afternoon stretch out around them as if they could live forever in just one day. Black's hand came to the back of her head. He deepened the kiss, then moved his hand down her back to her buttocks. His touch felt like fire and she found she could not breathe for the wanting of him. Black broke the kiss. His fingertip followed the line of her jaw to caress the area under her ear. As Black rolled her over onto her back, she reached up to him in desperation. Corwin felt tenderness wash over her. Where did this path lead? To another ripping apart in a few weeks or a few months? More grief? More loss? Her soul seemed welded to his as if they had been forged together in the same heaven or in the same hell. But he had set her aside in a moment not so long ago. He had handed her over to another to dispose of. This one moment, this now, was all she could count on. Maybe, now, was all anyone could count on in the hard march from cradle to grave.
Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5.